Well, hello, it is August 15th, 2019, and we're here to celebrate something that happened on August 15th and the days after in uh, 1969, 50 years ago today. And for those of you who are wondering what that is, it was the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival. Uh, and we're not going to be talking so much about the music, but about, because this is the Tox Journal Club for August, uh, we'll be talking about a pharmaceutical that was in wild wide use back then, which is LSD, and we'll explore multiple nooks and crannies. century um, long ago. <laughs> um, but what we're talking about today is really, uh, Woodstock really is sort of the, the middle of our story. We're going to go all the way back and talk about a lot of history like we usually do with our journal club, but we're going to get into some science and pharmacology as well along the way because it's important to cover all of that. Um, I really want to start out um, reading from a chapter of a book called uh, My Problem Child, written by Albert Hoffman, the man who uh, discovered um, LSD, and uh, can't read the whole book, but I'm going to read some excerpts from the first chapter, which really goes over what he did. And this is all written in the first person, so I'm going to be reading it in the first person. So, <laughs> this is your will. <laughs> chapter one. Time and again, I hear or read that LSD was discovered by accident. This is only partly true. Uh, this was actually part of a systematic research program, and the accident didn't really occur until years later when LSD was essentially five years old. As background, in the spring of 1929, on concluding my chemistry studies at the University of Zurich, um, I joined the Sandoz Company um, in Basel. I was a co-worker with Professor Arthur Stoll, who was the founder and director of the pharmaceutical department, and I thought this was an opportunity to continue my work on natural products, and I had an interest in plant and animal chemistry. Um, and in Stoll's laboratory, I was a research chemist, and my job was to isolate the active principles of known medicinal plants, and at the time, Professor Stoll had an interest in some substances such as foxglove, a Mediterranean squill and ergot of rye, um, which is where the LSD gets in uh, later. So my first years at Sandoz was mostly devoted to looking at the Mediterranean squill. And after I had done that for several years, I was looking for a new field of research, and I asked Professor Stoll to let me continue to look into the alkaloids of ergot, which had begun back in 1917. And led directly to the isolation of ergotamine in 1918. And ergotamine was actually discovered by Professor Stoll, and it was uh, used in therapeutics under the trade name Gynergen as a hemostatic remedy in obstetrics, also used for migraine. And uh, the research on ergot in Sandoz Labs was abandoned after we sort of commercialized it. But I felt that there was some continued use there. Um, ergot is produced by a fungus, Claviceps purpurea, and it grows as a parasite on rye. 
So in the early 1930s, we brought in a new ERGA research era, trying to build on work from Rockefeller Institute in New York, which was uh, succeeded in isolating and characterizing the nucleus common to all ERGA alkaloids. And the name of this nucleus was lysergic acid. And it was isolated uh, specifically as a uterotonic agent. And the substance, or the alkaloid, it was comparatively simple, was named ergobasine. And the way you made ergobasine, we were degraded into two products, lysergic acid and propanalamine. And my job was to do the reverse synthesis, was to use lysergic acid and propanalamine to make ergobasine or similar substances. So the lysergic acid necessary for these studies had to be obtained by chemical cleavage of some other ergot. And we decided to buy the less expensive Portuguese ergot at the time. And this led to um, lysergic acid proved to be a rather unstable substance. And we used a technique called the Curtis synthesis that ultimately found useful for combining lysergic acid with these other amines. And when we combine lysergic acid with the amino alcohol propanalamine, we obtain a, a compound that is essentially identical to the natural ergot ergobasine. Um, so I first attempted to improve the pharmacologic properties of ergobasine by variations in the amino uh, alcohol radical. And we substituted propanalamine with a variety of other chemicals such as butalamine and improved this uh, product and eventually was marketed under the trade name Methogen, which is still in use, uh, although not much today. Um, I further employed the synthetic procedure, produced some new lysergic acid compounds, um, and in 1938, I produced the 25th substance in this series of lysergic acid derivatives, lysergic acid diethylamide, and abbreviated it LSD-25. And this is the compound that we're all going to be talking about today. I had planned the synthesis of the compound with the intent of obtaining a circulatory and respiratory stimulant. Um, it was similar in structure to an analeptic already known, uh, which was coramine, um, but it had less than 70% of the activity of ergobasine. Um, experimental animals who received this drug became quite restless and narcotized, and however, research was abandoned. So that was 1938. For the next five years, really nothing happened. Um, however, I couldn't forget the relatively, although uninteresting, LSD-25. Um, I decided in the spring of 1943 to repeat the synthesis. And I was able to make only a few centigrams of this compound. In the first step of the synthesis, I was interrupted in my work by an unusual sensation. The following description of this incident comes from the report that I actually sent to Professor Stoll. Last Friday, April 16, 1943, I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home. Being affected by a remarkable restlessness and dizziness, at home I, I lay down and, and sank into a not unpleasant, intoxicated like condition. It was extremely stimulated imagination, a dreamlike state, with my eyes closed. I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. After some two hours, this condition faded away. This was altogether a remarkable experience, both in its sudden onset and its extraordinary course, 
and uh, possibly must have been from some external toxic influence, I surmised, a connection to the substance I was working on, lysergic acid diethylamine tartrate. But how had I managed to absorb this material? I was always maintaining meticulously neat work habits. Perhaps a bit of this LSD solution contacted my fingertips during the crystallization and trace amounts of that substance was absorbed through my skin. If LSD-25 had indeed been the cause of this bizarre experience, then it must be a substance of extraordinary potency. There seemed to be only one way of getting to the bottom of this, and I <laughs> decided on a self-experiment. <laughs> Using extreme caution, I began a plan of series experiments. My log from April 19, 1943 is as such. 1620, 0.5 cc's of a half a pro mil aqueous solution of diethylamine tartrate orally, equaling 0.25 milligrams of the tartrate, taken diluted with 10 cc's of water. It was tasteless. 1700, 40 minutes later. <laughs> Begin dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. I decided to go home by bicycle about 1800. <laughs> Uh, I was able to write only these last words with great effort. Um, and it already became clear to me that LSD had been the cause of this remarkable experience that previous Friday, and I struggled to speak intelligently, so I asked my lab assistant, who was informed of the self-experiment, to escort me home. We went by bicycle. On the way home, my condition began to assume threatening forms. My field of vision wavered and was distorted as if seen in a curved mirror, a sensation of not being able to move from the spot. In spite of my delirious, bewildered condition, I had brief periods of clear and effective thinking. The dizziness and sensation of fainting became so strong at times I could no longer hold myself erect and had to lie down on my sofa. Everything in the room spun about. Familiar objects and pieces of furniture assumed grotesque, threatening forms. They were in continuous motion, animated. The lady next door, whom I scarcely recognized, brought me milk. I eventually drank more than two liters. She was no longer Mrs. R, but rather a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask. A demon had invaded me, had taken possession of my body, my mind, my soul. I jumped up, I screamed, trying to free myself from it, but then sank down again and lay helpless on the sofa. It was this demon that scornfully triumphed over my will. I dreaded fear of going insane. I was taken to another world, another place, another time. My body seemed to be without sensation, lifeless, strange. Was I dying? I believed myself to be outside my body, and then perceived clearly as an outsider would observe. My fear and despair testified. I, I dreaded leaving my chemical research work, which meant so much to me, and I'm finished in the midst of a fruitful, promising development. I was now forced to leave this world prematurely. It was because of lysergic acid diethylamide, and I had brought this on forth into the world. Time a doctor arrived, the climax of my despondent condition had already passed. Uh, he, he could find no abnormal symptoms other than extremely dilated pupils. My pulse, blood pressure, breathing were all normal. He saw, he saw no reason to prescribe any medication. He conveyed me to my bed and stood watch over me. The horror softened and gave way to a feeling of good fortune, gratitude, the more normal perceptions and thoughts returned. Little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted beyond my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged on me, alternating, variegated, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybriding themselves in a constant flux. 
every acoustic perception, such as the sound of the door handle or a passing automobile, became transformed into optical perceptions. Every sound generated a vividly changed image with its own consistent form and color. Exhausted, I then slept to awake the next morning, refreshed. When I later walked out in the garden, uh, the sun shone, and now, after spring rain, everything glistened and sparkled in fresh light. The world was as if newly created. The self-experiment showed that LSD-25 behaved as a psychoactive substance with extraordinary properties of potency. No other substance that evokes such profound psychic effects at extremely low doses had since been known. I can remember the experience of the LSD inebriation in every detail. Everything was experienced was completely real, alarmingly real, alarming because the picture of the other family everyday life was still fully preserved. Another surprising aspect of the LSD was the ability to produce such a far-reaching, powerful state of inebriation without leaving any hangover. LSD, this new active compound with such properties, I thought would have to be of use in pharmacology, in neurology, and especially psychiatry. It goes on, it was more of a chapter of a book, but that is probably the most detailed uh, description of an LSD trip, as you will, um, that occurred, uh, Albert Hoffman, and some people do celebrate the, quote, bicycle day that he experienced um, in uh, taking that trip. So, we are going to delve a little bit more, and we're going to talk about Woodstock in a second. We'll play a little snippet from there. Before we get into more of that, I wanted to talk back in the 1950s, going back pre-Dr. Timothy Leary, a major player in the story, to some of the lesser-known corners of the history of LSD. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to um, Adam mm -hmm. to tell us about um, some of the early days in Harvard. Sure, sure. Uh, so this uh, section is going to be based on this article, From LSD to the IRB. Henry Beecher's Psychedelic Research and the Foundation of Clinical Ethics, and this is by Dr. George Mashar. And so this is a, kind of an interesting discussion of um, the work of Dr. Henry Knowles Beecher on the subject of LSD. Uh, Dr. Uh, Henry Beecher is probably be best known for kind of coming up with the term the placebo effect. So that's the context for this individual. And so he was um, a researcher at Harvard University who was uh, mostly working with um, essentially anesthetics, doing pulmonary um, vasculature physiology, and then had this kind of foray into psychiatric research, uh, most notably with uh, LSD. Uh, and so this was mostly in the 1950s, around 1956 or so. So one of the um, particular experiments he was running with LSD uh, was essentially uh, trying to figure out to what extent um, are the properties we see with LSD coming from the drug itself rather than what we might call a placebo-like effect of essentially you give a subject a substance, tell them they're going to um, hallucinate, and then they hallucinate. 
you know, was this the intent of the study or was this a primary drug effect? Um, so he was doing some interesting things. He was uh, largely working with Rorschach tests, that's the inkblot tests, essentially doing uh, pre and post exposure tests and collecting data, for example, what was the uh, subject's state of mind, uh, what were they thinking about, do they have some uh, pre-existing psychiatric conditions such as depression or something else like that, um, and found that um, it's, uh, it seems to be, let's, let's put it this way, personality disturbances or maladjustment were positively correlated uh, with um, more profound changes in the, the Rorschach tests. So one of the uh, things that, um, because LSD is still a very new compound, still being characterized, is this idea of was this a uh, psychedelic drug or a psychotomimetic drug? I, meaning, was this something that mimics psychosis or is this something that kind of expands the mind? Kind of the person who's already, it's changing their perceptions, uh, allowing them to think more broadly about their own perception of the real world. Or is this something that just is a purely physiologic effect that does, it causes hallucinations, it's, it's all like receptors and drugs, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, Beecher concluded that it likely did actually um, expand the pre-existing state of the mind uh, rather than purely having a, a drug effect, although it was certainly a mix of both. Um, he was talking a lot about the idea of the um, subject's set, also known as the mindset, versus the, and the setting, which was the environment, uh, rather than purely um, the pharmacology of the drug itself. So uh, this kind of, then over the course of the next few years, um, uh, as uh, the CIA started to also do some experiments with LSD, most notably with the MKUltra project, which was um, ultimately declassified, and uh, <laughs> let's just say this was the attempt at mind control, more or less, to see kind of how much you can manipulate individuals um, and kind of force them to do, to kind of bend to your will. Um, uh, so uh, Dr. Beecher seemed to be aware of these projects, possibly involved in it to some extent. Um, it looks like a lot of researchers were simultaneously publishing in the medical literature, but also reporting directly uh, to the CIA and maybe uh, providing unpublished data to the CIA. Um, through this, he became aware of some very uh, concerning ethical issues. So for example, LSD being given to people who did not expect it, um, did not consent uh, to the risks of this, or were not even told they were participating in any kind of study whatsoever. And specifically became aware of uh, a few individuals who were given this drug and uh, committed suicide. Uh, essentially, they presumably developed psychosis and, jumped out windows or had some other kind of dramatic death. Um, so through this, um, he became kind of increasingly concerned with the uh, ethics of study. This is also the backdrop. This is um, only 15, 20 years after World War II, um, the Nazi concentration camps, um, and the grossly unethical pseudo, I'm, I'm doing air quotes for those who can't see, but in air quotes, <laughs> scientific uh, studies that were done by the uh, Nazi physicians. Um, so this is kind of uh, the early point of um, biomedical ethics. Um, another study that uh, Dr. Beecher became aware of was uh, giving LSD to individuals as they're dying, which 
you know, without consent is kind of a big deal. So I'm just going to read a quote here. Um, the results recounted are based entirely on the subjective responses and symptoms and conclusions are drawn without the use of mandatory controls. In a meaningful evaluation of LSD, it must be known whether it is the LSD or the strong suggestion which perceives the drug that is the operant in this situation. The powerful action of the placebo has been unequivocally demonstrated. Apart from the serious difficulties stemming from the established potential dangers of LSD as a drug, there are those possibly arising from violations of privacy. So kind of in this quote, he's addressing multiple issues with these types of things, um, down to just violating a person's privacy and their autonomy, exposing someone to potential harms without their consent, uh, but then also study, calling something a study without any kind of control. So on multiple levels, these, again, quote-unquote studies are violating an individual's rights, but also not showing something in a scientific way because these are implicitly uncontrolled experiments. Um, and so that, I think that was kind of an interesting thing because we don't often think of the 1950s as a big time of LSD experimentation. So they brought that forward. Right, yeah, it was a time where it was still legal. It had not been made illegal. Mm -hmm. There were hundreds of articles written from anecdotes to real studies during the time. We'll get into a couple more of those. Some of the other points that were brought out, what you see the MK Ultra. And you know, mentioned drop a few names here that are involved in different aspects because they're all little, again, nooks and crannies of the story. Dr. Sidney Gottlieb was the director of him. Kim Ulter, he had a variety of studies, including one where he adulterated the drinks mm -hmm. of people unsuspectingly. One of those people ultimately was one of his own scientists who had um, an acute episode where he ultimately jumped out of a window and, and died. And eventually, I believe the, the U.S. government both apologized and made reparations to his family. They also mentioned another episode I wasn't aware of, another Swiss scientist who uh, uh, also uh, committed suicide after being giving <coughs> LSD. So this was a drug that was not safe in that people were having these terrible breakdowns. And he, Beecher himself suddenly turned from some enthusiasm for it to really critical of people, especially critical of Timothy Leary, one of the students, who eventually told people to drop out and turn on. And eventually he, Leary himself was thrown out of Harvard to become sort of the uh, uh, spokesperson for the LSD counterculture uh, movement. So we'll play another stage announcement from. Uh, we'll have partaking of the green acid, if you would, as soon as convenient. Please go to the hospital tent. Dr. Jack Bateman. Dr. Jack Bateman, please, with full suturing equipment, your presence is requested in the new hospital, which is on the other side of the helicopter landing area as you face the stage on your left. You've got a delivery today. <laughs> yeah, some stage announcements <laughs> from Riverside. <laughs> Best of all, obviously, they were sort of one of the pioneers of uh, event medicine, <laughs> having to deal with the LSD overdoses uh, and babies being delivered and whatnot. Um, next up in our articles is a, a catchy title, but really it talks about another nook and cranny we didn't really know about, I think, in general, was the Canadians were actually doing a fair bit of work on LSD just after sort of the Harvard era of the 50s. So 
Tell us a little bit about that, uh, Lauren. Sure, thank you very much, Zane. So my article is by Erica Deek. This is a flashback psychiatric experimentation with LSD and historical perspective published in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry in 2005. Just as Zane was alluding to, this is a review that's primarily giving some context behind the use of LSD and focusing primarily on the historical aspect experienced by uh, the Canadian, or the, rather the Canadian experience with their scientific research during that time, which again, until this journal club, I actually didn't even realize and was quite fascinating aspect that I didn't even recognize. So it sounds like uh, in going through the article, she starts off by mentioning how uh, in more modern times in the early 2000s that and. MDMA, popularly known as air quote ecstasy, and air quote, is now being revisited as a potential uh, therapeutic um, option for either neurologic disease or for psychotherapy in patients with PTSD. And um, just recognizing that, you know, this controversial using what is perceived as an illicit substance therapeutically. Um, would, is a time when we should go back and look at how this how this played out in the past. And so again, we revisit the history of LSD. So she go, starts out in uh, 1938 revisiting um, uh, Albert Hoffman's synthesis of LSD and his, ex, his experience of his first bicycle trip, as Zane already wonderfully shared with us, which was really nice to hear his uh, um, full account, because they put a couple quotes in here, but I didn't get the full <coughs> chapter before. So... Uh, that was really interesting to hear from. And she notes that um, this whole idea that this, that this chemical substance can induce a psychotic or, uh, I guess, yeah, a psychotic type state is totally revolutionary to the psychiatric community. And this is a time when if you think about how we think about the context of psychiatric treatment through history, in the 1920s and 30s, people were institutionalized uh, because there was no medical treatment for things like schizophrenia, mania, bipolar. Um, things included were alcoholism and addiction disorders where you were permanently institutionalized. That was considered a psychiatric illness. Um, things like hysteria, right, where you would be permanently institutionalized. So the idea that perhaps there are chemicals that are influencing um, some of our psychiatric symptoms stimulated this idea and that research could be done to try and come up with medications to help these patients, which is truly remarkable. She talks about how in the 1950s, research took off all around the world on LSD. It was not just the United States. It was also Japan, Canada, Germany, Belgium, France, and they were uh, studies, and they said by 1951, uh, there had been 100 studies published on LSD, and by 1961, over 1,000 separate studies had been published both on humans and animals, in vivo and in vitro data. And then uh, she essentially says, you know, if we didn't have this whole experience, um, we may not have had this influence to start looking for chemical treatments for psychiatric illness. So from that standpoint, it really did make a big difference. Um, mentions briefly David Healy, uh, who attributes that all, he says, all our antidepressants, including SSRIs and antipsychotics, were developed from the research that took place in the 1950s when all this was starting to be done. Um, and then she turns to this very interesting work in, that was done in Canada, and we get a little bit of background. So this is mostly focusing on the work of Humphrey Osmond. And this is a gentleman who um, 
was a British physician in London where he worked with John Smitty's and he was first working with mescaline, uh, which is the active ingredient in peyote or peyote, I guess tomato, tomato. Uh, and then after two years of research, they decided that mescaline caused symptoms in normal people that were similar to the symptoms of schizophrenia. And mescaline is a phenylethylamine, so it's uh, similar to what you would imagine from the effects of MDMA. And then at this time, they were attributing all these effects to adrenaline, quote unquote. So that was the neurotransmitter, that the only one that had truly elucidated at this time. So he wanted to do more research with this, but in London, they weren't as open, and he was looking for a place to uh, pursue this uh, research and see how it, if it could offer anything to the psychiatric community. And he ended up moving to Saskatchewan and then met Abram Hoffer, who was a very interesting uh, scientist and um, doctor who actually had a background and PhD in agriculture before turning to work in medicine and, and obtaining his MD in medicine. So they started working together with mescaline, um, oftentimes practicing on themselves uh, to help guide their therapy. And they came to this realization that they started trying to publicize that mental illness was a biologic entity and could be studied and treated, unlike this. Uh, I guess the predominant psychiatric treatment was, you know, the psychotherapy and, um, you know, inherent differences in people and treating it now as an illness. So uh, when he took mescaline, he described some <laughs> what sound pretty horrific uh, experiences, maybe something what you would describe as a bad trip. Uh, but he has one excerpt that they include where he was trying mescaline and people's faces were very uh, grotesque. Everyone looking at him was plotting against him. So it seems like paranoid delusions, which he was able to relate to in some of his patients because they were working in a psychiatric facility at this time. And then they, because they were doing all this and LSD was coming up, they became familiar with LSD. So uh, Humphrey Osmond said, well, I'll just try LSD. Let's see what happens when I do this instead of the mescaline. Well, that's the first way to start the therapy. So he starts LSD and then he realized that much lower doses of LSD were needed compared to mescaline to achieve these psychiatric effects, but also that they were less horrific mm -hmm. as compared to the <laughs> mescaline and wasn't, were not as scary, but of course that was just one experience that he described. Um, but he concluded that because you could use less LSD, that it was uh, very much more potent and maybe something that they could more easily use for their studies. And then um, she mentions that they started doing early volunteer subject and patient studies that reported uh, personal enlightenment, new insights into psych their psychiatric illness, or and self-reflection. And they said that, uh, this is a quote, they don't have any um, references for this, but that uh, patients were starting to be, were getting um, new personal insights and clarity that they're helping them with their illness. And I think, let's see, I have one quote here that was, um, as they were turning to LSD, it, again, this revolutionized thought, I think this quote was really nice, and they said, for psychoanalysts, the drug released memories or revealed the unconscious. For psychotherapists, it brought patients to new levels of self-awareness. For psychopharmacologists, LSD reactions supported contentions that mental disorders had chemical origins. And it's just like everyone's getting revolutionized by this change. So then they move into these studies on um, LSD for the use of DTs and ETOH addiction and ethanol addiction. And so the idea that spurred this was, well, when I did LSD, it seems a lot like what's described when an alcoholic patient who is in withdrawal goes through DTs. 
So if I can give them, but when I do LSD, it's safe, and I don't have seizures and die. Mm -hmm. So if I give a patient who has an alcohol addiction a DT, a safe DT with LSD, maybe, because when alcoholic patients have DTs, they're like, that's the last moment, I'm never going through that again, I'm going to stop drinking, and they became obstinate. Maybe mm -hmm. if we can mimic LSD, maybe if we can mimic this DT with LSD, then we can prevent them from drinking again, but safely, without them going through DTs. And so that was the idea I was gathering behind his early studies. So essentially, they did a couple of studies that they describe in this paper. Um, he starts out with a case report of two patients. They admit them to a psych facility for addiction. They do not describe in this article what procedures they went through to get them through the early withdrawal at all. They just say at the end of their hospital stay, they gave them a very large dose of LSD. In their first two case, uh, cases, one patient never drank again and one became abstinent six months later. Whether that's related, it's very hard to tell. Then, then they note a... Um, Colin Smith is another physician in Canada who did another LSD trial with ethanol-addicted uh, patients, 24 patients, and they had this two- to four-week hospital stay, and then they either gave them LSD or mescaline. And out of those, 50% had no change in their addiction, 25 were abstinent, and 25 still drinking but less. And we don't have any uh, ability to correlate, you know, what sort of withdrawal, what were their, um, you know, withdrawal treatments they went through, and also what other types of support whether they were an AA, whether they were getting individual psychotherapy, group psychotherapy, we don't know when the other factors were. And what, um, Gunn, uh, what Erica Deeth brings up in this time is there was also this huge um, shift in what is a controlled study, and I think this it comes into context with the MKUltra business, also the, um, the, you know, their recent trauma experience from, the, from World War II and the Nazi experiments. There was all this arguing, you know, you can't, things have to be safe now. Everyone's pushing for, like, a controlled study where you're, it's not safe unless it's, you know, done a very certain way and you have to control for all the other factors. And they're having a lot of, um, uh, a lot of arguments just on the philosophy of how to do a study. And I think there's, there's an interesting insight from Osmond that I wanted to share in one of the quotes. And it says, Osmond deplored the contemporary faith in controlled trials as the new authorities in clinical research. He says, many variables may be held more or less steady, but the pretentious, inaccurate, and misleading use of the word control should surely be abandoned, and editorial authority should, uh, could properly be exerted here. Its use has become absurd. And I think that's a, reading that, kind of a little bit of it touched home with me, because Right now, we have all these things that we said, you know, oh, it's only a good study if it's controlled, but does that really mimic reality? You know, it's like, oh, yes, our study proves that in 24 male patients in Sri Lanka, that if they took this medicine, they did better, and how that helps us. And so I think it kind of gets into the, I mean, I know that's kind of outside the breadth of this discussion, but it just in a lot of philosophical quotes and, and reflections in here. So... Moving on to another alcohol study in Canada, and this one was a little bit more interesting. So Sven Jensen did this study in uh, 1962 with three groups, and they had, a again, a, a hospital stay during which the um, treatment for alcohol withdrawal was not described, but uh, they had these three treatment groups, one which were given a large dose of LSD right before discharge, 
one that participated in group therapy throughout their hospital stay and one who had individual psychiatric therapy. And they followed them up a couple years later and they found that 65% of the group who had been given LSD at the end of their stay were abstinent as compared to 18% in group therapy and 11% in individual psychiatric therapy. And these groups, I think they're all about 50, 60 people each. So that's the end of her descriptions about the studies. And uh, we have, then we have the 1960s where we start getting the um, uh, media change in perception of the safety of LSD. There's reports of a child overdosing. There's a report, this report of a, a 30-year-old who killed his mother-in-law with no recollection of the event while on LSD and how everything became demonized. Um, and then in 1966, it became an illegal, uh, quote-unquote, narcotic, and it was difficult for anyone to obtain for further research. And then in 1966, the original company, Sandoz, uh, from was it Sweden, is that correct? Switzerland, Switzerland sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, they voluntarily ended distribution. And then in 1968, researching using LSD was criminalized, and that abruptly stopped all these experiments. So essentially, Ms. Dr. Deke is, you know, saying, hey, you know, we have these potential, you know, s studies that maybe show that this could be a beneficial therapeutic aspect, and then we were abruptly stopped from continuing based on these, you know, other ill effects. Um, and that's about, uh, once criminalized, and the big thing was a social statement where once something is criminalized, it alters the image of, you know, the usefulness of psychedelics in medical circles and how we may not be utilizing what we have available to us once it's once it's criminalized. That's about the end of her. Yeah, I mean, it's a good summary bringing us up to the criminalization and sort of the end of any LSD research. Thousands of papers, some interest in psychotherapy, some interest in alcoholism, some interest in, in, in detox, and then all of a sudden it's banned by a Schedule One drug with no use and research stops. However, when we ban things, we have a uniform thing happens is it ends up in underground counterculture, however you want to phrase it, people start using it and experimenting it individually. Similar to that, the warnings at uh, Woodstock just continued to get worse <laughs> from wander over to the medical tent to... Uh, So I guess a little bit through that era, 1968 to 69, to the Woodstock in the middle of our uh, story today, Jim is going to tell us a little bit about from Hoffman to Ashbury. Yes. Um, so the, my article is called From Hoffman to Hate Ashbury and Into the Future, the Past and Potential of Lysergic Acid Diethylamine. Um, and the authors of this article um, are particular note, uh, Dr. David Smith um, was one of the founders of the Haight-Ashbury Clinic in San Francisco um, that took care of a lot of um, the counterculture patients. Um, and then that clinic has um, evolved and taken on other projects um, into the present time. So it's just a little bit in this article, but then I was reading a little bit more about it um, to sort of um, 
start from where Loren was discussing um, about the um, use of uh, LSD in uh, medical study. The article sort of breaks up um, LSD into sort of three phases. The first is what Loren was discussing and its use in treating alcoholism um, and suggesting that potentially if you um, gave uh, alcoholics a quote-unquote safe trip, um, that they would be able to um, have a prolonged period of abstinence. Um, and those initial studies suggested that, although um, there was a decently high rate of relapse um, because patients were not plugged into counseling or were lost to follow-up for counseling um, during that time. Um, but it seemed as though this was really starting to take off in terms of potential therapeutic uh, use until it, it was um, abruptly um, classified as a Schedule One um, medic uh, substance um, in the in the mid '60s, um, and then once that sort of label was assigned to it, um, the article starts to discuss more about the non-medical use of LSD, so the recreational use, um, a lot of which was happening in San Francisco, um, and um, led to the development of some of these clinics and some certain practices of the way that um, patients on um, LSD trips were managed. Um, some of that was, uh, they were sort of labeled these talk-down and calm centers, um, and these calming tents at events such as like Woodstock um, and some of these other concerts. Um, the way that the Haight-Ashbury Clinic was actually able to keep up its funding because it was a free 24-7 clinic for patients was by having these large sponsored concerts um, where they could raise money for the clinic. Then they had these tents where they could then use the top-down method for the patients. Um, to help them with their uh, hallucinations and psychosis from their LSD use. Um, it's interestingly described sort of in the appendix of the article, uh, their strategies um, for uh, the talk-down. And one of the quotes, it says, the art of the talk-down is the interplay of knowledge, intuition, and experience of the guides, varying with individual circumstances, substances, and resources available. Put another way, with apologies to Sigmund, a tripper is an id with feet. <laughs> he has no rules, superego, or reason, ego. He is his own universe. We become his rules, containment, and we provide an alternative ego until those functions of his character can reassert their own control. Um, and so it's a, the appendix is a very uh, interesting description of the way that they used to um, employ the top-down method and um, other strategies they would employ, such as using mats to keep people restrained and on the floor, avoiding physical restraints unless it was for transport, um, even if these things were uncomfortable to the clinician, <laughs> it was safer, and then um, having to use medication sometimes if necessary, though that was um, generally seems frowned upon. Um, so in addition to the uh, development of the clinic um, and its ability to provide free care, I guess a 24-7 free care for uh, the counterculture um, group and for other 
patients um, in need of free care um, and who may be experiencing addiction to other substances um, in San Francisco. Another component that grew out of this was um, the development of this rock med group, which was sort of the um, earliest form of event medicine, um, where they would sponsor the tents at these rock concerts um, and have these bad trip tents where people could go um, and get care for until their, um, their um, trip was over. Um, and rock med has actually, it continues to exist. Mm -hmm. Um, it manages events such as like Burning Man and like some of the other concerts where some of these substances are probably still used. Um, <laughs> sadly, um, the Haight-Ashbury Clinic just closed at the beginning of this month um, in San Francisco. They uh, were still trying to sustain their free medical care for homeless and addicted populations um, in San Francisco and unfortunately their funding sort of ran out, and so there was an interesting interview um, in the San Francisco Reagan Chronicle with Dr. Smith um, just about how, unfortunately, the clinic had had to close, but they're hoping to combine it with some of the other area-free clinics and reopen it to help um, care for that, for, the, um, for patients in need of free care in San Francisco. Um, the article then goes on to talk about um, the use of LSD in psychochemical warfare, um, and how the, um, the government was looking um, for either ways that they could um, sort of immobilize enemies to um, prevent their, like, as um, using these types of chemical agents, or that they could use it for, like, mind control or to gain access to secrets um, that um, enemies may have. Um, and so there was um, a few, probably more than we know, um, experiments um, by the army uh, initially out of fear that the Soviet Union was also pursuing similar uh, chemicals that they would um, give LSD to some of their own army volunteers um, and some of their own um, Army members to um, see if they could see what sort of reactions they would have, um, and ultimately they concluded that it was too unpredictable and uncontrollable for any tactical use by the U.S. Army or any army, and so the CIA took it on, um, <laughs> and the CIA started using it um, as a truth serum. Um, where they would give it unknowingly to individuals um, to see if they could obtain information. And that was sort of the MKUltra um, group that, uh, or program that was run by the CIA in the 50s and the 60s, um, where they would go into local bars and put it in people's cocktails. Um, and unfortunately, caused some people to have really terrible psychosis and have really terrible outcomes um, from that experimentation. Um, and then the final part of the article talks about um, the potential use of LSD in the future, um, you know, of trying to investigate could it be used in therapies um, in, in current times um, and not in recreational use. 
Um, in particular, they focus on whether or not it is an appropriate treatment for patients at um, end-stage uh, life phases. Um, looking at, you know, there there's some argument that we give people high doses of opioid medications um, that can be dangerous in certain capacities, um, and if uh, LSD could be given safely to help minimize some of the anxiety um, or uh, concerns that patients have about dying um, to sort of get them to that um, more peaceful, like one with um, the spirit uh, state um, as they're approaching the end of their life. Um, so that is addressed in the article as a potential uh, area of exploration and research um, that that could that could be a therapeutic use, um, and sort of them trying to address that as sort of Lauren brought up that um, because it was labeled as a Schedule One medication, it has this sort of stigma assigned to it. But perhaps if we're able to move it away from that stigma, there's a possibility for therapeutic um, use for it. Um, which sort of brings us up to present day. Yeah, no, great. Um, a couple of small uh, footnotes to, to that article. So one of the people who were unwittingly or perhaps wittingly uh, experimented on was Oregon's own uh, Ken Kesey, who's mentioned briefly in the article. Ken Kesey, of course, the author of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, amongst other books, was a night clerk in the Menlo Park VA when he was given LSD as part of experimentation and eventually became part of the Merry Pranksters acid tests, which were well-documented in the Tom Wolfe novel, or not novel, uh, essentially documentary book, uh, one, uh, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which includes uh, other notaries as uh, Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, and, and a trip to try to visit Timothy Leary and some other people of that time. But one other person of somewhat notoriety mentioned in regards to the palliative care at dying is Aldous Huxley, the author of The Doors of Perception, amongst other books, um, when he was dying of throat cancer, uh, received uh, 100 milligrams of LSD, about four times the usual dose to help him ease uh, death. And a lot of people have taken this event to look into the future, which, which may be some uses in palliative care. Um, so all this, all these people and personages have transported through the history of LSD. And we'll play it as the stage announcements get sort of more anxious before we jump into our next article. We'll play one more. Silence settles over the whole pavilion and we realize that we've overloaded everything and the final fuse is blown. The helicopters will still be flying out the wounded and the green tab acid takers will be saying to one another, I took that green stuff and I feel great. What's all the hassle? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> so one would say we've gone from 1930s to 40s to 50s to 60s and no one ever did what we would call the basic science, which is... Let's look at the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of LSD. That is until literally just a few years ago when this fascinating paper came out. And to, to discuss the pharmacology, we have with us our adjunct professor of pharmacology here, Dana. 
they didn't actually look at the half, one and a half, and two and a half hour samples. They also didn't look at the um, subjective data for these patients, so what the patient reported feeling uh, at those time periods, or the actual vital signs for those time periods. So um, looking at, you know, if that one was just done prior, and so they decided to add those time points for the second study, or why exactly those time points were excluded um, if it was not set up that way. It's also interesting, um, the lab data from each of the two studies was run in different laboratories, uh, and so they do have different levels of um, lower limits of quantification uh, between the two studies. Um, whether or not that may, plays an important aspect or not, but comparing the two, they were at um, processed by different labs. As far as what was actually looked at for the effects of these uh, medications, besides looking or drugs, besides looking at the actual concentrations, uh, individuals were asked to measure uh, both individually if they had any effect from the drug, a good effect or a bad effect, and this was on a visual analog score that went from having no effect whatsoever for any of these all the way to an extreme effect. Um, and again, the visual analog score given at those same time points, except for the few that were excluded in the first study. Other um, vitals were collected, so blood pressure, heart rate, and body temperature, again at these same time points. Um, these were all performed in duplicate after uh, one minute intervals and the patient, what patients were allowed to you know, get up and go to the restroom, so but the patient had to have been resting for 10 minutes at the point where these were measured. Um, they did look at a couple different models for pharmacokinetics. So initially using a one compartment model with first order elimination, they also looked at um, fitting a two compartmental model, but it didn't actually seem to improve anything and possibly had some slightly uh, worse fit. So they kept with the one compartmental model um, in trying to fit the actual pharmacokinetics. For the actual um, statistical analyses, they made a comparison between uh, the placebo and the same subject at the same point in time uh, throughout the study, so that way they could control for any uh, changes in like circadian rhythm. Um, so if your body temperature is changing or heart rate, um, if there is a change related to it, the fact that we're looking over a 25-hour period, um, they looked at that change from their essential baseline from those indi for, per individual. Um, looking at the actual results, there it was a, the studies were able to measure the LSD concentrations. Um, in the first study, that lower dose, uh, they could measure it up to eight hours in all patients. Um, the vast majority could still be measured, so 22 uh, out of the 24 patients at 12 hours. Uh, and then down, they could only measure in one patient at 24 hours. In contrast, for that higher 200 microgram dose, all uh, 16 patients had measurable values in the 16 hours and 15 of the 16 could still be measured at 24 hours. So as you would possibly expect at a higher dose, you're able to measure for a longer time period. It gets a little bit interesting, I think, um, looking at some of the actual data and uh, some of the graphs that they have. 
So the maximum uh, plasma concentrations, as you would expect, are going to be about two times higher um, for that higher dose. Um, and they did say that you know the, the graphs that they had were consistent with the one compartmental model and linear elimination. Um, but when you look at when they're trying to actually compare the drug effect um, to both time as well as the LSD concentration, um, around four hours, both doses actually have a similar uh, rate of having an effect. Now, they don't necessarily say how big of an effect, especially when you're looking at these visual analog scores, but half percent of patients actually having an effect was similar, even though the concentration was quite different. Um, and you notice that it seems that uh, when you compare the lower dose maybe has a little bit of a lag time and it seems to decrease in effect a little bit faster, but it doesn't seem to correlate as much with those higher doses. Um, patients who receive the higher dose and reach a higher concentration much quicker, but don't actually necessarily have that higher effect any sooner. Um, so it, it does seem to be more of a, a time lag that is associated as opposed to strictly a uh, dose-response relationship. Uh, some of the other, um, so they did mention um, for patients, so as far as actually having an effect, uh, the patients who received that lower dose, it uh, on average took about 0.8, so close to an hour to have the effect, and it lasted up through about nine hours with the most patients having a total effect of just over eight hours and the peak at 2.8. This was uh, fairly similar, so the larger 200 microgram dose had a little bit of a quicker onset, about 0.4, so half an hour, and it lasted to about 11.6, so a total of 11 hours of uh, duration of that response with a peak again around 2.5. So the overall kinetics, um, the uh, half-life for both was calculated out to be 2.6 hours and the time to the maximum response uh, were calculated at 1.4 and 1.5 hours. And when you look at that, the ranges they're very, very similar with a little bit of a, a, a lag and a little bit of a longer uh, peak response in a couple of those higher dose patients, but very similar. Um, the increases in both diastolic and systolic blood pressure, heart rate, and body temperature didn't really seem to have a, an impact what dose the patients were receiving. Um, and you can see that in, in the table that lists the um, actual responses. The, the graphs, I was a little disappointed in that there's supposed to be a comparison um, a change from time zero, but most of the time points don't actually start at zero at time zero, mm -hmm. and how you can have a difference from time zero when you're at time zero kind of puzzled <laughs> me a bit. Um, so the, the graphs may be a little bit misleading in that their axes are not actually where they should be, especially when you're comparing the two and they're not starting both at the same place. Um, but they did find that um, overall, uh, you know, for those vital signs, they were fairly similar um, compared on dose. And again, they're not necessarily following so much as in, or the concentration not being so important as perhaps the overall time uh, profile. So whether that is taking time to 
cross the blood-brain barrier, which is not being measured by checking plasma concentrations, whether that is a time for a receptor to actually have a response, um, or some other change in compartmental, um, some other compartmental kinetics that isn't being um, measured in this specific study. Um, so again, they found that there really was no uh, correlation between the concentration and some of those pharmacodynamic effects. They also looked specifically to see if there was an association um, between concentration and peak effects. They looked at both concentration, body weight, um, and sex, and again, found no association, so those weren't confounding factors. Um, So a lot of, I guess, somewhat unfortunate that we can have a, this study and it's not really telling us a whole lot um, new other than maybe some of those very basic pharmacokinetic data. Um, as you, again, as you would expect, higher dose, higher concentrations, but not necessarily a, a larger effect. Um, although, again, the study wasn't great at measuring how big of an effect, just whether or not patients were having that effect. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the two studies did look at patients. Um, they were different patients. We weren't having patients that were being tested, both on a placebo, the 100 microgram, and the 200 microgram. These were two separate cohorts of patients that received the two doses, and they were analyzed in, in separate labs. Um, so overall, uh, a little bit, I guess I would have loved to be able to see some of these dose concentrations correlating with effects. Um, it's probably something you maybe have to either look more at a, uh, concentrations in cerebral spinal fluid, which, you know, good luck getting an IRB <laughs> to approve that study, um, or possibly, again, some of those actual receptor effects. Um, but it does show that then, you know, concentrations aren't that important, so maybe not something that we need to be looking at And those, you know, fMRI and other, um, modalities are more useful for looking at when you would expect or when you actually see the, the, the effects that people are experiencing in a uh, non-subjective manner. So not just the patient reporting, but actually being able to have some scientific data to back it up that you know fMRI and things like that maybe mm -hmm. get better than uh, LSD concentration. Yeah, and there were some studies like that. We couldn't include mm -hmm. everything. Today, right. But yeah, I mean, this is like the stuff that should be done first before any research, before a thousand articles you, come out, is like, what is the onset of the drug, usually within an hour, what is the half-life of the drug, because now we know it's 2.6 hours, <laughs> how long could we expect the drug to last, probably uh, 12 to 24 hours in, in most people, and, and lastly, that, you know, given doses of 100 micrograms to 200 micrograms, much larger than discrete amounts seem to be safe as far as any physiologic changes, mild elevations mm -hmm. in blood temperature and body temperature. So from there, maybe we can move forward with actual, actual <laughs> modern research. Um, but we'll play one more clip uh, as things sort of went from bad to worse at, uh, um, at Woodstock.
So we went from mosey on over to the hospital tent to we're gonna you're poisoning <laughs> people by large numbers. The good news is no, nobody died from any sort of illicit drug overdose <laughs> at Woodstock. Um, one person got run over by a tractor, and it's alleged that the only drug overdose that resulted in a death at uh, Woodstock was from an insulin overdose, which was mm-hmm. accidental. But anyway, bringing us up to our our last article. Uh, lysergic acid diethylamide, is it a drug of use? Uh, Rob is going to answer that question. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is an interesting article. It is a bit of a sort of history, so I'll kind of review um, some of the things that have been talked about, but kind of in an um, overview, and then uh, a look forward at what is in the future. So, um, as was mentioned before, uh, uh, Albert Hoffman uh, uh, synthesized LSD, and as the um, as the 40s went on and into the 50s, um, people started to recognize the effects of LSD, and it was uh, described as an entheogen, which is a psychoactive substance that produces a spiritual experience, which I thought was a pretty cool word. It's roughly translated from the Greek to generate divine within. Ooh. That was pretty cool. Um, but in the 50s, physicians started to realize that, like, hey, if schizophrenics have delusions and uh, hallucinations, then what if we just cause those with LSD and then we can study it and, you know, we can treat it and things like that and, and see if sort of making a psychosis model might be helpful for medicine. And that's really where things started, but in those studies, people realized um, and described a couple of really interesting uh, observations, which are people were able to recall traumatic events in much greater detail than they were uh, not on LSD, and um, had abrogation, which I know there's a couple of really cool words, so I'm just going to keep bringing them up which is a release of previously repressed emotions. And so that was sort of uh, the beginning of the basis of um, this idea that maybe this can be used in psychotherapy. And um, the drug was described as inducing a great ventilation of emotions in schizophrenics and described as an empathogen, which has been used to describe uh, MDMA. And so the thought was, oh, this might be interesting in psychotherapy. And you know, just like in modern-day uh, America where... Um, a hypothesis leads to immediate use of things like Kratom and (laughs) CBD. Um, They said, oh, wow, that's an interesting theory. I'm going to open up a clinic and start giving people LSD, and that's what (laughs) happened. (laughs) And people were using it uh, to enhance psychotherapy and psychoanalytical uh, therapy for uh, decades, and well into the 70s, and in fact in um, several other countries, uh, Netherlands and, and Germany into the late 70s, and in Switzerland even until 1993, people were using um, psychoanalytical therapy that was enhanced by LSD. But during that time, during the 60s, while recreational use was increasing, medicine started thinking about this with addiction, uh, anxiety, major depression, OCD, um, and psychotic uh, conditions. Um, but also during that time, people started noting some of the side effects that people were talking about before, um, and that maybe that this is not a, a, 
perfect drug, maybe this is um, not a perfectly safe drug, and maybe it shouldn't be used in everyone. And um, I'm going to, um, this is the tangent alert, and I'm going to tangent a little yes. bit because they have this wonderful description of this single case report <laughs> um, of poor Tusco. Um, so Tusco is an elephant, and in a demonstration of the uh, astounding uh, American creativity, I have to specify which elephant named Tusco <laughs> I'm talking about, specifically the Oklahoma City Lincoln Park Zoo Tusco, because mm-hmm. apparently there are many, 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 many elephants named Tusco. I guess that's the equivalent of naming your cat Whiskers. Um, <laughs> but poor Tusco, the theory was, um, there's this really interesting thing that happens in male elephants, adult male elephants. It's called must, M-U-S-T-H. And it happens intermittently during adulthood. It's almost exclusively in males. They get restlessness, irritability, eye-watering, and then they have these little glands on the side of their head that starts secreting this thick brown liquid. And then two or three days after that, they become very, very violent and difficult to control, and that lasts for about a week or two. Um, It's been compared to uh, rutting behavior, but, and I love this because this is in the the article that describes this episode is in Science uh, in 1962. Um, But it is not like rutting because (laughs) as likely to attack a female as, the the elephant is as likely to attack a female as it is to mount her (laughs) during this period. So apparently they get very, very, very violent. So the um, scientists had the theory that what if we give them a bunch of LSD? Um, then we can induce must, and then we can study it. Uh, and so they uh, theorized that they figured out a dose that they thought was appropriate because uh, human doses are much lower than animal doses. A cat would require a lot more LSD. Uh, and they theorized that since massive doses of succinylcholine had been used by one of the authors in attempts to destroy elephants in the field, um, we considered that the elephant possessed substantial resistance to neurotrophic agents. And so they used 297 milligrams, not micrograms, milligrams, um, and injected this elephant with LSD. The uh, patient, uh, excuse me, the patient, <laughs> the Tusco, <laughs> um, because it's a really, it's, a, it's an awful description, but I will, uh, I will get through it. Essentially, Tusco started rushing around the pen, got incoordinated, fell to the ground, then had um, the limbs on the left side were hyperextended and stiffly hmm. held outside of the body. The right side was drawn in in partial flexion. Um, the eyeballs were turned sharply to the left. They interpreted this as status epilepticus, and the elephant died one hour and 40 minutes after the injection. Um, and the necropsy uh, was... Uh, laryngospasm-induced uh, asphyxiation. So, very interesting. Certainly other uh, you know, human side effects and things like that, but also this Tusco event um, then obviously led to some regulation, as we all know and is regulated now. So the question is, um, should we open this up? Should we look forward to LSD, look forward with LSD to see if it has therapeutic effects? And um, there are some... Interesting um, studies, while most of the studies we've already talked about are uh, when measured with our current um, 
measuring stick of the scientific method and using things like control groups and um, don't really hold up very well. Um, there are a couple that are kind of interesting. So one is, as I mentioned before, um, a treatment for anxiety associated with life-threatening illnesses. Um, there's been a few studies looking at the anxiety related to terminal diseases um, and LSD in moderate doses, 20 to 200 micrograms, seems to decrease anxiety. Um, and they theorize that that might have to do with uh, physiologic effects. There was one study that uh, showed increase in oxytocin concentrations um, after LSD. Whether that is caused by the LSD or caused by the decrease in anxiety is not entirely clear. There's a study, a fascinating study, looking at human creativity, which is a really interesting thing to study, where a, uh, a researchers Dobkin de Rios and Janiger um, gave LSD to a mixed group of 60 visual artists over seven years, uh, and then the artists produced 250 drawings during that time. Um, and unfortunately, the end point is entirely subjective, but they describe that the LSD improved their art, <laughs> essentially. They did look at specific things, like that do make some sense. The colors were sharper. Um, they had uh, increased organization of the works and things like that. Um, but it's hard to really get too excited about a truly subjective type of uh, experiment like that. They have repeated those studies in other creative industries like engineers and theoretical, theoretical mathematicians and physicists and architects. Um, and they've also all suggested that there's increased creativity. Uh, but boy, that's a really hard thing to measure and I wouldn't put too much um, uh, behind that. Um, getting back to um, what Jen was mentioning before with the CIA, suggestibility is increased with um, uh, with LSD uh, and that has been fairly well documented. Um, they suggest that that might make it really good for psychotherapy. I suspect that the CIA thinks that that might make it good for other reasons. Um, and they do note that there are negative and positive implications because you may increase the danger of inducing false memories um, and uh, and instilling uh, wrong beliefs. So that doesn't sound like it's very um, positive. And then the big, the big thing that one's probably most studies is alcohol addiction. There's been uh, over 30 studies. Very few had control groups. Most of them were underpowered. There is one meta-analysis of six studies that showed that um, there was a uh, decrease of alcohol misuse when patients were given LSD they were given gigantic amounts as far as 210 to 800 micrograms of LSD. Um, so I don't know how reproducible that is, but um, the, those six studies were given, uh, suggested that people have decreased alcohol misuse while they're using LSD. Uh, and then uh, again, with um, looking at smaller doses, 100 micrograms of LSD for patients who have uh, who are terminally ill, who are near death, um, seems to improve their sleep, seems to decrease their anxiety. Um, and I should state that 
Um, the, one of the reasons why it is theorized that it may work for addiction, particularly for alcohol addiction, is that there are uh, a large density of uh, 5-HT2A receptors in um, the frontal limbic area, um, and uh, larger, I should say, in people who have, I should say, a larger density is correlated with increased anxiety um, and exaggerated stress responses. And they theorize that anxiety and stress responses are highly correlated to substance abuse and to recurrent substance use, uh, and that's sort of the theory. Um, finally, they mentioned PTSD, which is a thing that I've heard a lot about hallucinogens. Um, the theory is really interesting. Um, they state that because overwhelming psychological trauma can cause persistent harmful changes in brain structure and function, we propose that mystical experiences occasioned by classical hallucinogens can have some inverse PTSD-like effects. What's odd about that, and they don't have this in this paper, is that uh, one of the hypotheses of, of flashbacks is that it's essentially PTSD. And so it's a highly traumatic event that then is relived, just mm -hmm. like PTSD is. And so you would think that that would be um, how that would how that would cause an inverse PTSD like effect is is difficult to understand. And then finally, um, they they mentioned psilocybin um, and other hallucinogens like mescaline uh, have been used for alcohol and nicotine dependence. Um, and there is actually a current bill talking about the future um, in the Oregon legislature um, looking at, at legalizing hallucinogen uh, in use with psychoanalysis uh, and um, to enhance that and uh, so not to legalize the drugs themselves but to legalize their use uh, with uh, uh, a therapist. So there's a lot going on and I suspect that we'll hear a lot more about hallucinogens in general and LSD in the future. Yeah, no, I think uh, we've come kind of full circle from when it's discovered through its brief experimentations and sort of coordinatedly through so through the 50s and then a long period of prohibition and misuse as a, a non-medical use and finally now to sort of good pharmacokinetic studies and some dabbling in studies, especially palliative care and applied PTSD, and stuff that was suggested originally by Albert Hoffman uh, after he had his uh, bicycle ride and his uh, his trip. I'll mention there's a one more paper just we threw in as a coda uh, from our own uh, lab here, so to speak, uh, from Dr. Adam Blumenberg and Rob Henriksen here. This was a LSD analog called ALLAD which a, a person bought and went into VFIT cardiac arrest, and they were able to, with time of flight, mass spec, determine that indeed this was a new substance that caused this cardiac arrest in this person. So studies both good and bad go on, and we'll probably learn more. And so when we come back for the 60th anniversary of Woodstock, <laughs> we, we will all know more. But I'll finish up with this final brief story and a little bit of uh, a... Um, musical ending here. Um, this is basically one of the people who actually played at Woodstock, wasn't invited to play, he actually bought a ticket um, and was hanging around backstage and they were having trouble moving 
the amps around, it was John Sebastian, mm -hmm. and they said, can you get up there and play something while we get set up for the next act? And so he did, and, and he finished up with this song, which is relatively obscure, but he, I think in the last verse, captured both the angst of that generation becoming apparent and somewhat predicting that their next generation may be addicted to the iPhone. the Oregon Journal Club for August, <laughs> 50 years after Woodstock. Thank you all for uh, listening.